back everyone. Welcome to Doctrine Class. We're starting Unit 5 out of 6, so we're very close to finishing. It's already been 9 classes, which is pretty crazy. Um, hopefully we've learned a good amount. Hopefully, like we've been praying, it's not just making us smarter sinners, but um, the knowledge is leading us to worship and to love Christ. So uh, we're back. We've had a little hiatus with, you know, the storm and Christmas break and all these things, but we're going to go straight through for the next three weeks, hopefully, and we're looking to end in three weeks, including this. We'll finish up with the doctrine of church after the doctrine of salvation, but of course we'll see how it goes. Um, but glad to be back. Let's pray together. People are still trickling in. Hello, hello, hello. Sujin, what's up? Hello. Is Sujin going to be in the seat where the thing falls again? <laughs> Every time. Now I just wait for it. Yeah, you got to check it. I think Sojong already went to a falling one earlier. <laughs> there's sheets in the back. Also, if you did not download the sheet, again, there was problems with Facebook. Um, Deacon Levy will put up the link. It's also on the Facebook page. It's a little weird instructions, but it should be pretty simple. It's just tinyurl.com forward slash QPEM doctrine class 05. So let's join in prayer together and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Um, God, we thank you so much for um, this new year. God, it has been... Uh, a tumultuous year already, especially with everything that happened um, today on the news. And as we look at the news, as we look at what's going on around us in our countries, and even um, surely what's going on even in our own hearts, the sin that we've witnessed in our own hearts and the failures that we've come across already in this day, uh, we're reminded uh, more and more that we need you. Um, every moment, every second, we need you. God, we don't need a new year. We don't need um, these, these new beginnings, God, it's not going to be our hope and it's not going to bring true change. But what we need is, is you to remind us always of your sovereignty, of your goodness, and of your grace and your mercy towards us. And we need you to remind us that even through all the shaking and all the turmoil, that you will continue to hold your church, you will continue to hold your bride, and you will make us more and more acceptable in your sight each day. So we pray as we resume this class, remind us why we are learning doctrine. Remind us why we are learning and gaining more of the knowledge of God. And it is for true piety. It is so that we may worship you, so we may love you, so we may render unto you obedience that is pleasing in your sight. So God, be with us tonight. Um, really enlighten our hearts, enlighten our minds, and illuminate our minds to understand these truths, especially as we look and observe our salvation and what it takes and what is going on in the, in the salvation of our soul. So be with us tonight. We need your help. We need your guidance and draw near to us. Show us Christ. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. If you haven't picked up a sheet or downloaded, printed out one, make sure you do that. Uh, we are going to now go into the doctrine of salvation. We ended, I believe, two weeks ago with the doctrine of Christ. Um, I know that was quite the doozy. We talked about a lot of things. Um, and, and again, the point of this class and the aim of this class is not to retain everything. That's impossible. Right? You, know, you never retain 100% of anything you learn. But it's just to start dipping our feet into something new, getting our feet wet, right, as they say, and, and understanding um, things that maybe we've already known, but maybe we didn't know the terms, you know, things about our faith, about our salvation, and seeing them in light of this great tradition, right, of orthodoxy and and. and the creeds and confessions of the church for many years. So again, I, I encourage you guys to look back at the past units, any questions you've had, and even as they come up in sermons, things like that. If you hear things that maybe remind you of the classes, I encourage you to just you know, go over those things. You could ask me questions or talk to your brothers and sisters about them. 
But today we're going to begin the uh, doctrine of salvation. So we're going to talk about just that. We're going to talk about our salvation. And I'm sure we all can talk about our salvation to some extent, right? It's not just a Sunday school answer, but it's a good answer, right? That our salvation is through Christ alone, right? You might say some more modifiers by faith alone, by grace alone, right? You might bring it back to the cross is what saves us. Maybe in light of the last auction class, you might say it is a resurrection that also is a part of our salvation. But for this unit, we're going to just kind of take a, a deep dive, but still very shallow, into the doctrine and the, the theology right, behind our salvation. And our salvation meaning the life that we receive. right? Even at the heart of that Greek word is, is sozo, and it's this idea of life. It's the receiving of life. And in this sense, we're going to talk about how that life is a gift. A gift from God. So we're going to break it up. And today we're going to tackle the first two points, which is the definition of grace. And two, we're going to talk, we're going to get into, I don't know if we'll finish, but we'll talk about the doctrines of grace. So first we're going to talk about what grace is, because when we talk about salvation, we need to talk about grace. And secondly, we're going to talk about the doctrines of grace, which is more um, popularly known as Calvinism or the five points of, of Calvinism. So we're going to talk about that as well. So let's start off. If you look at point one, the first thing is we're going to talk about the definition of grace. And this is a, a very classic text talking about our salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Right? This should remind you of the solas of the Reformation, right? The five solas. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. This is, in a very quick nutshell and sentence, this is how we are saved, right? It's not through our works. It's not through our merits, right? And again, as I say these things, my hope is not that you could like rename every single thing I've ever said in the doctrine class, but as I say something like that, saying something like we are, we are not saved by our works or by our own merit, I hope you could think back to the doctrine of man and say, oh, but we are saved by Christ's work and Christ's merit. That's, that's really what we want to glean as we go through this class. So we're saying by grace, we have been saved through faith. So what is grace? Grace is definitely another very Christianese word thrown around, right? We know a lot of graces in our lives, especially because most of us are Korean here and we go to church, a lot of graces. So what is grace? First, if you look at point one, grace is a noun. Okay, grace is a thing. It is God's favor. This is from Jerry Bridges. He says, grace is God's favor through Christ to people who deserve his wrath. Okay, so very off the bat, you see very three important things. You see God, right? You see Christ. Sorry, we're going back to the X for Christ. And then you see sinners. We're always going to have these three things when we talk about grace. We're going to see God, we're going to see Christ, and we're going to see people who deserve his wrath. If you keep reading with me in point A, it says grace is essentially a gift. And this is something I just want to impart to us that if you see the word grace in the Bible, I want us to start immediately thinking gift. It's a really good habit to build. Because the one thing you need to understand about grace is that it is a gift. That is the, the defining feature of grace. You can say all these things about grace, right? We, we thank God for his grace. We say grace when we eat, all these things. We throw it around so much, but if we could just give grace just a really simple, essential, like modifying or just an identifying word, I want us to think gift. It is something we don't deserve, which is what a gift is, right? That's an example I used to use with my kids all the time. 
If you get a, a hundred, if mom says, if you get a hundred on your exam, you get a PS5. And then you get that PS5, that's not a gift. What is that? That is a, it's a reward, it's a wage, right? You earned it, right? But if you think about something like your birthday, like, hey, I got you this PS5 for your birthday. You don't earn the gift by being born, right? It's a gift, it's freely given, or like Christmas, or anything of that matter. It is a gift, something we don't deserve, something that is unmerited. But, if you keep reading in A, but in order to get to the heart of biblical divine grace, we must understand grace with regard to two essential elements. So of course we know that grace is definitely has to do with merit. And if you look, there's two things we need to understand when we talk about grace. We're talking about the absence of merit. And this is definitely what we mostly gravitate to when we talk about grace. We're saying that it's something that is unmerited, that there is no merit in me that should make God give anything to me. So when we receive grace from God, we are saying that there is an absence of merit, that it is unmerited favor, unmerited forgiveness, etc. But not only is it the absence of merit, but if we understand, especially as we come off the doctrine of man and we understand our sinful nature, we're also talking about the presence of demerit. So when you understand grace, you can't only say, God, thank you that I didn't deserve this. You have to also say, thank God, because I deserved this instead. Does that make sense? And it's a very simple nuance, and I'm sure you read this and you're like, oh, duh. But again, this is where we want to really tighten up our theology. And when we say we receive God's grace, we're saying that we're getting a gift from God which is given to us in the absence of merit, that I don't deserve anything, and also it is given to us in the presence of demerit, meaning it is given to me although I deserve something else. And of course that something else is the wrath of God. And I wanna stop here and help us to understand, if you lose one of these, in a sense, you cheapen the grace of God, right? I think especially in the last 20 years in the church, there's been a lot of, um, a lot of kind of drifting away from the idea of God's wrath, right? I think just, I think a lot of Christians don't really like that idea. And we hear that all the time. If God is so loving, if God is so gracious, then why does he have all this wrath? He seems like an angry old guy, angry old man with all this anger wrapped up. But, you know, even you got, we know that song in Christ alone and there's that line where it says, right? And on that cross, Jesus died. The wrath of God was satisfied. And I remember like years back, there was a lot of petition to remove that line from the song. Because we love talking about how God is overflowing with love and forgiveness, even though we don't deserve it. But people get a little bit uncomfortable when you start telling them, yeah, and you also deserve something else. And if you lose one, you will cheapen the whole. And that's what I really want us to understand as we think about what God has done for us, especially off the, the coattails of Christmas and in this new year. We have to understand that both of these are necessary for us to understand the grace that we have truly received. If you look at B, it says, in our relationship with God, very simply, our obedience leads to merit and our disobedience leads to de demerit. And if you remember the covenant of works, this should start ringing a bell. The Bible is clear that we don't have any merit because why? We're disobedient. Our sin leads us to disobedience, and it also taints our obedience. So that's a double whammy. Not only does the sin inside us make us disobey, 
But the sin inside us also ruins any of your obedience. So that even your attempts at obedience are still sinful. Right? That reminds us of Isaiah 64. Right? That our, the righteous things we do, they are like dirty rags before God. Therefore, as sinners, all we have in our relationship with God is demerit. This is the only thing you bring to the table with God. Demerit. That's it. Demerit, which means you deserve wrath. That's the only thing you deserve is punishment and wrath. So as we look at this, I want us to maybe um, see something not new, but maybe just let this really sink in, that we receive grace in these two things, the absence of merit and the presence of demerit. And now if we move on, we see that there's two types of graces that we can see in the Bible, right? All grace is grace. All grace comes from God. And yet, it's not all the same grace. And what we mean by that is that there are two distinct graces that we can see in the Bible, right, that have to do with salvation. And one of them is the way to be saved. So if we look, and Pastor Peter's talked about this in the past sermons, he's talked about two types of grace, right? The first being common grace, and the second being saving grace. And if you look with me, common grace, the distinctions, first, common grace is general and universal, okay? When we talk about common grace, we're talking about God's blessings, which are bestowed on all people, okay? And when we talk about common grace, you could think about someone you know, there's always that one person in your life that's not a believer, and they're like 10 times nicer than you, right? Like 10 times more holy and 10 times more forgiving than you. And you might say, well, how is that possible? Or you might see marriages, right? Where the two people are not believers. And if they're not believers, then how do they have the capacity to forgive themselves, to forgive each other, if they don't have that source drawing upon Christ's forgiveness? And the, and the reason even why those marriages can stay together is by common grace, right? Outside of the gospel, there's only damnation. There's only sinfulness and rebellion. And yet, God does bestow this grace on all people. If you look, though, it says God's common grace does not pardon sinners. That's so important. The common grace of God does not pardon anyone. Rather, it's just God's universal blessing of goodwill to all people. And the very quintessential text is Matthew 5.45. For God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you have a Christian farm, Christian farmer next to a, a Hindu farmer and it starts raining, it doesn't only rain on one area, does it? The rain falls on all the places, all the crops. And in that sense, we see there is universal grace generally given to all people. I would even go as far to say that the reason why sinners are not struck down and killed right now is because of common grace. God bestows this grace upon all people because the time that we live in now is a time of salvation, as Isaiah says, right? The hand of the Lord, the Lord is near. Salvation has come. And this is why this grace is given to all people. And yet, this common grace is not the same as saving grace. Common grace is general. It says here in point two, saving grace is specific. And common grace is universal. Saving grace is exclusive. God's blessings are bestowed only on his people. There are some blessings, right, in which they're only bestowed on God's people. Think about Ephesians 1. All the heavenly blessings being seated in the heavenly places. We would not say that that's given to all people, right? Saving grace is bestowed only on his people, those who are saved by Jesus Christ. And I've shared this quote before, and it's so good. J.I. Packer says, God loves all in some ways. Think about that. 
God loves all in some ways, and he loves some in all ways. Okay? That's, we need to understand that. And before, and right now, it should be a little triggering, and we should start thinking, is that really fair? That's the big question that comes up when we talk about salvation, biblical salvation. Is it fair? Is God being fair here? But that's what we see in Scripture. God loves everyone in some ways, general, common grace, but God only loves some people in all of His fullness. He only gives some people all of the blessings in heaven. And this is where we start coming to the doctrine of of grace, the doctrines of grace. Okay, so that's kind of what we talk about when we say, what is grace? Remember, it is gift. It is God's favor given to those who have an absence of merit and they also have a lot of demerit. And we have to understand if you are Christian, if you are a believer, you are the recipient of saving grace. Not just common grace, but also saving grace. And if we bring it back to our uh, second week of doctrine class, third week, we receive that saving grace through what? through special revelation, right? Not just through natural, but through the scriptures alone. And if we go now to the second point, a little small point, not only is grace a noun, but grace is also a means, okay? Grace is not just a noun, it's not just a thing, but it is a means. It is the very vessel through which God blesses all people, right? That's why when we say we're saved, right, by grace alone, we're talking about the way in which we receive this gift, right? It is the gift and it also the means, freely given. That's the, that's the essence, that it is freely given. Grace is the gift of eternal life, if you look at A, under two, but it is also the means by which we receive that gift, freely and unconditionally. So if, if you've gleaned anything from this first point, when we think grace, I want us to think free gift, so I always teach to my children kids, free gift. Grace is a free gift, right? We used to do the kids evangelism explosion, and that's what we say. Grace is a gift. It is not something you work for or deserve. And when we think, of, when we think about everything we've said, we, we have to see, yes, grace is this free gift, and it is also freely given with no condition at all. And that becomes the base of our salvation. So then we have grace, it is a good thing, but now we have the problem, which is sin. What is the problem that grace solves? It is the problem of sin. If you look with me down, the first bullet point says, God's person and law are in perfect union. So when we sin, we do not simply break his laws, we assault and insult the infinite dignity and majesty of his person, right? If you break a a law, right? Some people here know this, one of my dear friends in this room, but I'm breaking a lot of traffic laws these days, unintentionally. I guess pretty intentionally sometimes, but you know, sometimes you speed over that 25 mile per hour limit. But when I break that law and I get that ticket, it doesn't offend like the governor or the mayor. It only offends my wife and my bank account, right? But we have to understand that's not the way it is with God. When you break God's law, His law and his being, his person, are so perfectly in union that when you break God's law, you are assaulting God himself, right? You break the laws out here, you know, the higher-ups not getting offended. You're not breaking their heart in that sense. But we need to understand that's why sin, that's why disobedience is not just missing the mark. We don't want to 
belittle it like that. That's why the biblical words, the Hebrew words for sin, the words like trespass, transgression, they all have very strong, intense connotations, and they're not just crossing a line. But every sin is an assault upon the majesty and the dignity of the king, the king of the universe. Because God is holy, he must punish sin, right? We know that. This is turning to a little gospel presentation. Because God is holy, he must punish sin. And God's mercy must be understood along with his justice. God cannot simply overlook and forget about sin because then he would no longer be just. This is something I also hope we understand. I've talked to many Christians, unfortunately, and also many other people of other religions who cannot reconcile the fact that God is loving and that God is just. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that even in our culture, we don't know how to nuance something like anger. Think about that. How many of us really believe that there is an anger that is pure and righteous? Probably it's hard for us because we don't know what that looks like because we don't have it. How many of us believe that there is a jealousy that is pure and righteous? Well, you better believe because it says God is a, he's a jealous God. And we need, to, we need to understand that when we think about God's mercy and God's love and God's goodness, God's grace, all these things that we love to talk about, that's why I'm saying we love this. We love talking about God's grace and how we don't deserve it. We sing those songs all the time. We don't deserve it, right? We don't deserve this kind of love, right? Love undeserved. We love talking about that. But in order to really get to the heart of God and to the heart of our salvation, we need to understand that there is wrath, there is justice. And you see, if God did overlook our sins, right? If he said, you know what, you didn't really mean that, I'll let it slide, then we would have no longer the God of the Bible. There is no compromise within God or else he is no longer the God he claims to be. Look at that last bullet. This is a very profound quote. It says, God does not forgive sin. And you might hear that and you might be saying, what? Of course he does. But if you think about it, God does not forgive sin. He punishes sin. But he does forgive sinners. And that is where we find ourselves. What I mean by that, of course, I'm not saying that when we pray, we ask God to forgive our sins, that he's not going to. But the heart of that quote is saying that sin is not something God just let, he doesn't let it slide. He can't. He has to punish and squash all rebellion, all evil, all things that exist antithetical to who he is. God must destroy it because he is a righteous, holy God. And his glory will not be diminished by anyone. But God does forgive sinners. And this is what grace really is. It is the fact that he is able to forgive us. And he does it not because we earn it or deserve it, but freely, freely he does that for us. So now let's move on to the next page. And now we're gonna talk about the doctrines of grace, okay? The doctrines of grace. So now we're gonna talk about grace we're saying is that it is the very essence. It is the root, right? It is the, the means by which we are saved and it is the very thing that our salvation is. It is this free, unmerited favor from God that gives us eternal life. But now I, I want us to kind of move past that. You know, if someone asks you a question like that, you know, how are you saved? Or maybe spice it up a little bit. What is the, what is the defining factor in your salvation? You're going to hear different answers. And this is where we kind of get into the doctrines of grace. 
Now, before we get into point two, I do want to give us a little bit of background um, because this uh, topic can definitely get a little bit dicey. And um, again, it's, I want to make it clear, you're not saved by your doctrinal alignment. You could disagree with something in this and still be genuinely saved and a child of God. Right? The doctrinal agreement is not what makes us brothers and sisters. But the point of us going through this is, for me, at least coming from where I stand and what I believe is biblical, I want to present it to us. And I do want to say with confidence that I do think that this is the salvation that is reflected most clearly and accurately in the scriptures. And we are going to pin it against something else. And I hope we can make those decisions on ourselves. Of course, maybe do your own research, ask questions. I'd love to do that with all of us. But we do need to have a stance. There's nothing wrong with being firm in saying that, yes, we are brothers, brother, sister. We are family through the blood of Christ and only through our faith in Christ. And yet, we do want to examine and know what is at the heart of our salvation. What is the mechanism behind our salvation? That question of how are we saved? And this is where we get to the doctrines of grace. Now, the doctrines of grace often is called the five points of Calvinism, or most simply, we know it as Tulip. And we hear these jokes from Reformed people all the time. They're going to name my daughter Tulip. That's nice. That's actually pretty cool. But Tulip, people say it's the most beautiful flowers. And Tulip is just an acronym to describe the five points of salvation, the five points of Calvinism where we talk about God's sovereignty and salvation. But let me give us a little bit of background, okay? The five points of Calvinism, or Tulip as we say, the doctrines of grace, these aren't just spawned out of nowhere, right? These weren't just people who came together and say, hey, let's come up with five foundational truths about salvation. Now you see, TULIP, the five points actually came out of theological discrepancy and debate. Back in the early 1600s in the Netherlands, where we find a lot of Dutch Reformed people, there was a man, Jake, Jacobus or Jacob Arminius, okay? When we talk, and we're going to talk now about something called Arminianism. Not to be confused with Armenian, okay, that's a nationality, Arminian. Arminian, his name is Jacobus, Jacobus Arminius, or I just call him Jacob Arminius, easier. And Arminius and his followers in the time when they're in the Netherlands, you see in that time in the, like 1609, around that time, that's when Jacob Arminius passed away. But in the early 1600s, the Netherlands, the, the theology that they followed was the Belgic Confession of Faith and the Heidelberg Catechism. And what Jacob Arminius did with his followers is they actually rejected the teachings, especially about salvation, about predestination, about the reprobate and all these things. They, they challenged these things and they basically, after Arminius died in 1609, his followers came up with five points of their own. And this is way before there was any five points of Calvinism. So there was just the doctrine and the theology of the Netherlands. And then this man, Jacob Arminius and his followers, after Arminius passed away in 1609, they came up with five points where they're, they call it the remonstrance or they're protesting the doctrinal statements of their country, of their, of their area. And what they were doing is they were rejecting the way that the Belgic Confession and the Netherlands, the church, the Dutch Reformed Church in the Netherlands was viewing salvation. And this is where we get the five points of Arminianism. And I'm going to teach us Arminianism today. And, and we're going to go into it. But here, here's what happened. These, this protest was given, these five points of Arminianism by the followers of Jacob Arminius. And then after 
many years passed in 1618, right? The church called a, a gathering, right? They were called synod in this country called Dort. And it's the synod of Dort, very famous. And after like 150 session meetings, right? Shout out to the elders and however meetings we have, however many meetings we have. Over like 150 meetings, over like seven months, the synod that come together, they concluded that the points of Arminianism were not biblical. Okay, they concluded that these points from the followers of Jacob Arminius were not biblical. And, but here's the thing, not only that, did they decide to reject the teachings, but they found it necessary to create five points of their own, to set against the five points of Arminianism so that people can understand what is consistent with scripture. And that's actually where we get the five points of Calvinism. The five points of Calvinism were created in response to the theology and the doctrine of Arminius and his followers. And this is now where we start to understand what is at the heart of our salvation. So that's a little history lesson for us. And it's, I hope even in something like that, you see the church is a beautiful thing, right? People have genuine concerns. And I actually know some people who are Arminian and believe in the Arminian doctrine and they're wonderful people. Wonderful brothers and sisters actually in Christ. But what we see is that the truth that's brought into the church, the church is faithful because God is faithful and he is able to refine our theology. And what we believe about the five points, the five points of Calvinism, the, and this, this whole acronym of TULIP, I'm sure and I'm pretty sure even for us as the KAPC, we subscribe to the Westminster Confessions. This is what we believe is the true doctrine of salvation in the biblical view and in the reformed tradition. So the way I'm going to teach the five points, I'm going to teach TULIP, is I'm going to teach us first the five points of Arminianism. So we're going to make a nice little table here. I'm going to get a little five. So the first thing, in Arminianism, here's what we believe, and we're going to go down very simply. Okay, so we're going to put our TULIP right here. We'll, we'll, we have around 30 minutes, so we'll have a good amount of time to go through this, and we'll take questions after. So we're going to start comparing them. The first thing with Arminianism is they believe in, of course, free will, but more specifically in human ability. And this is a little disputed. Arminians have always, um, I think especially recently, kind of disputed that the Reformed, the Calvinists, can, like, kind of misrepresent their first view. But I think it is consistent with the readings of, of Jacob Arminius that I've done. But what they believe is that every human has free will, as we believe that as well. But they believe that even though humans are depraved, that they are fallen in sin, they believe that there still is something in us, in every person, in which we are able to choose God on our own. Okay, that's what they believe in terms of human ability. Yes, we are fallen. Yes, sin is real. Yes, the fall has corrupted mankind, but not to the point that there is nothing in you that is able to choose God by your own choice. Does that make sense? So what they believe essentially is that you can have faith before regeneration. You can have faith before the Holy Spirit works in your heart to change you and to bring you to life. So if I could put it simply, in Arminianism, they believe that human beings, although they are fallen, they are not totally spiritually destitute. They are not totally spiritually bankrupt or helpless. There is still something in us that is able to choose God. Yes, with some grace involved, but ultimately we can choose God by our own free will. 
That's the first point. Okay. Next, we have conditional election. Now, what they believe is simply that it is the sinner who chooses God. And that is what determines whether you are chosen. Right? And what they're saying is that when God chooses who will be his people from eternity past, right? we have texts like um, uh, Philippians 1, right? which says that before the foundation of the world, right, God has chosen us. We understand that. We see that in scripture. And what they believe is that the way God chose us was conditional on one thing. And that is whether or not you would choose him later on. So what they're arguing is that God looked down into this, 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 this warm, wormhole or this something. He looked down into the scope of time. He saw which one of us would freely respond to the call of the gospel and then based on who would respond, he chose you to be his people. So think about when you responded to God. For most of us, I'm sure it's at some winter retreat, summer retreat, missions trip, something like that, right? For many of us. And what Arminianism teaches is that God looked down all the way to that moment, right? Past your birth, whenever it may be, at a retreat when you're in eighth grade or when you're 80 years old on your deathbed, God looked down into time. He saw that moment. Who is going to respond to the free offer of grace? And then he chose them. And that's why it's called conditional election. And you see, in this second point, what do we really have? We have, yes, God electing people, but it is conditional upon the people's choice of God. We see that? So that's our second point, conditional election. Next, and this is where we start getting a little dicey, we have universal atonement or general atonement. And this is where we, I really hope we start hearing something a little frightening. And what they believe is that Christ died for all. Christ died for all. Where do we get that in scripture? Most famous, John 3, 16, 1 John 2, 2. Christ died for the sins of the world. Christ died for the sins of many. And here's the thing about a lot of proof texts talking about who Christ died for. It can go either way. If we want to argue about it, you can cite John 3, 16, and then we can cite John 10, that only Jesus' sheep know his voice. We can even cite something like Galatians 2, 20, that Christ died for me. Right? It, it, we don't want to just go off pretext. We need to see all of theology. And what Jacob Arminius and his followers believe is that Christ dies and he makes salvation possible for all people. He makes salvation achievable for all people, but he has effectively died for all people. And now what happens is that it is up to us to place our faith in Christ, to place our trust in him, and then by doing so, we now obtain the effect of what Christ has done for us. Okay? And that's important because it's going to help us understand the other side. Let me, let me say it again, maybe a little more simply. Christ has died for all, and in doing so, he has made salvation possible and achievable for all. But you must make your way to him in order to uh, be able to enjoy and receive the benefits of that redemption. That is what we call universal redemption or general atonement. Christ has died in general for all. Universally, he has died for all. And if you've been in New York City long enough, you, you see some of the, 
the sketch people on the sidewalk giving you the pamphlets and hopefully we understand that universalism is not biblical. Anyone, any Christian who believes that every person goes to heaven has not read the Bible or they have read it completely wrong. That is a heresy and it comes from the pits of hell, truly. And I'm sure it has led many people astray. But what they're saying is that, not that everyone goes to heaven, but that Christ died for all, making salvation obtainable by all, but you need to do your absolute part and make your way and grasp at Christ's redemption. Can I give a little more of a, maybe an illustration? It's like Christ has shed his blood and there is a pool of it and it is for all. It is never depleted, but you must make your way over and receive that blood. That is the doctrine of universal atonement. Next, let's keep moving. We have then resistible grace. And this ties in a lot to free will. And what we're saying is that the grace of God is always going to be based on our response, right? What, what, what the resistible grace is saying is that when God offers his grace to us, when God offers the gospel to us and the, and the grace and the, the redemption of Christ to us in the gospel, Arminian, Arminians and the Jacob Arminians followers, they, they're affirming that ultimately it is up to us to make room in our hearts. That the sinner must give way in order to be changed and cleansed by that grace. So that grace is something that can be resisted. And I'm sure right now you're thinking about many people in your life, maybe even yourself, and you're saying, that is definitely true. My parents, my siblings, and even I, even right now in this moment, we are resisting God's grace at all times. But when we're talking about resistible grace, we're talking, of course, like I said, about salvation. And it's asking that question, when you receive grace, is it because you've made room in your heart, right? And we hear a lot of notions like that in the church, right? Like we're welcoming God, we're inviting God. Right? One of my least favorite lyrics that has come out of very popular Christian music is this notion of, God, we give you permission. You think God needs your permission to do anything? <laughs> and that's kind of what, what's at the heart of this, that even the grace of God can be resisted. Even that offer of grace can be resisted. And it must be received by the sinner. The sinner must give way. He must give God that access. She must give God that access into their heart. And last, what we see is this fall from grace. Proof texts come to mind. John 15, things like that. I'm divine, you are the branches. And what they believe is that although grace is truly from God, simply that we are able, by our own disobedience, by our own callousness, we are able to forfeit that grace. In doing so, you can fall and lose your salvation. That's the last point. I don't think I need to even say anything more about that. Yes, grace is from God. Yes, it is given by Him. And if you mess it up enough, you'll lose it. And you're out. And this, brothers and sisters, is the five core tenets of Arminianism. Now, again, like I said, I'm sure there are many Arminians who do not fall exactly on each scale. I know people who also say they're Calvinists, but they don't believe in all five. But this is generally what we have seen. This is what we saw all the way back in the early 1600s. And this is 
the doctrine of salvation. And can I say this? There are many churches that peddle this doctrine and that believe this doctrine, and it is in their very foundational truths of their church. The theology of Jacob Arminius. And you might hear this and you might say, what's the big deal? But the reason why we have Tulip is because hundreds of years ago, there were Christians who read their Bibles, who loved Christ, and who loved the gospel, and they heard this and it offended them. And in inciting these as the true doctrines of faith, there were many Christians of that time, when they heard that this is actually the way that God saves, they felt that it was an assault on the gospel itself. And they came up, not only did they reject these five tenets of Arminianism, but they came up with their own five points, biblical truths of salvation. And that's where we get the five points of Calvinism. I want to make a disclaimer. The five points of Calvinism are not the whole of Calvinism. There's a lot more points to Calvinism, but this is what is most practically known. And can I just ask us, as we heard these things, before we get into Tulip, can we just meditate on these five things? And maybe ask ourselves, why do we need this? Why do we need something else? Not just because it's unbiblical, but if you hear these things, what is it? It's really bad news, right? If you know yourselves, many of us here, we're definitely further along in life. I'm sure everyone, anyone who's listening, we're definitely, if you're listening to this class, you're definitely, you've been walking with the Lord maybe for a while or you're further along in life. You know yourself well. If you know yourself well and you know the extent of your heart and sin, and this is what is offered to you as the means to salvation, and someone tells you, hey, you're a sinner, but there's still something good left in you that you can choose God on your own. Do you really think you could do that? Think about where you were before God saved you. And think about even where you are now, although God has already saved you. Do you really think that there is any inkling of good in any of us that is able to freely choose this holy God who demands our whole obedience? And I hope we can all say no. And next, this, this notion of conditional election. If God has only chosen those who would, he saw would respond to him, does that sound like good news? No. It doesn't. Because then that choosing, first of all, it's conditional, so it might not be you. And that's really what people don't like about election. But more than that, it really begs the question, does God really love you to begin with? Or did he just choose you because he saw you would do something else? And is that really love? I don't think it is. So that's also bad news. Next, universal general atonement. If this is the truth, going back to even this first part, that Christ has shed his blood for all, he didn't actually accomplish your salvation, he didn't actually definitively make sure that you would make it home to glory, but all he has done is he's made salvation possible, and now it's up to you, even though you are a wretched sinner, to come to Christ on your own and to bow your life to him. Does that sound like good news? Imagine saying that to the person who's most stubborn in your life right now, who does not want to come to faith, and you tell them, hey, the good news is that Christ died for you, so you better do your best and hurry up and get over to him. That's not good news at all. And again, if we know ourselves, and we know even now as Christians how much we don't want to obey, 
This can't be good news. Next, resistible grace. This should hit a sore spot for many of us. Maybe that was you who was so rebellious, so resistant to God's grace. Maybe some of your family members. And this idea that the grace of God, that God, although He wants to save you, He can't. Why? Because your resistance is so strong. That's what this doctrine is saying. That God desires to save some people, but they are thwarted by what? By those very people. That it is our resistance. That we are the ones who are so powerful in our rebellion and our sin that we can even stop God from saving us. Also bad news. And you know why it's also bad news? Think about that person in your life. I've shared this before, but me and Hein, we, we pray for our family members before we sleep on, on um, Wednesday nights. And more than not, most of our family members are not saved. And I think about if, if this is true, resistible grace, then I feel pretty hopeless. Because I think they'll probably keep resisting grace till the day they die and they meet their maker. But it's also not good news. And then we come to this ability that you can lose your salvation and that has to be the worst news of all. I think John MacArthur said it the best. He said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. And you, if you think you, you didn't already, you probably just did. <laughs> if you could fall from grace, that would be bad news. You would walk on eggshells, right? And it would, de- it would destroy the purpose and the meaning of grace itself. How can you lose something you never earned in the beginning? to begin with, right? And the reason why we don't want to affirm Arminianism is it's not biblical, and because it's not biblical, it's not good news. It actually damns us all. And it puts, ultimately, the reason why Arminianism is so, is such bad news is because it puts the ball in your court. All of these things have to do with your decision. It is up to you to choose God. It is up to you to make yourself, to make yourself go to Christ, even though everything within you does not want to. And if you don't, well then, you don't get to partake in the redemption. It is up to you to stop resisting God's grace. It is up to you to stop hardening your heart. And the reason why, again, this is bad news, is because it is totally the sinner's choice. It bypasses the sovereignty of God. And to think that we would say that if God wants to save you, He only can if you let Him in. How offensive is that to a holy God? A holy God who does whatever He pleases. So then what do we have then? If this is not going to cut it, what do we have? And this is where we get the response, the rejection of the five points of Arminianism, and we get the doctrines of grace, the five points of Calvinism. We'll we'll go through them quickly, and I shouldn't have to explain for long because you're going to see exactly what they mean because we've gone over what they were in response to. We do not believe in human ability or some remnant of goodness in us. We believe in total depravity, T. Or, I like, total inability. We talked about this briefly in Doctrine of Man. Total depravity is the natural condition of man. Look at the proof text. Jeremiah 17, 9, we know that one. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Right? Romans 3, 10, 12, that we fall short of the glory of God. It talks about our sin, our disobedience. Ephesians 2, 3, that we're objects of wrath, children of disobedience. That is who we are in our nature. 
We talked about this before. What is total depravity? It is the corruption, the total corruption of mankind. Which means the heart, the emotions, the will, and the mind, the physical body as well are all corrupted by sin. That does not mean that we are as sinful as we could be. That would be very bad. If every person is as bad as they could be, we looked at what happened in the news today. Think about what would happen if everyone was as bad as they could be. That's not what total depravity means. But it means that we are totally affected by sin in all of our facilities, all of our faculties. Because of sin, mankind cannot choose God, will not choose God, and will never have any inclination to choose God. And I like total inability because it's not just saying that you're wicked and that you don't want to choose God. Total inability tells us even if you tried your very hardest, you can't choose God. And you know why this is important? It helps us understand children too, right? If you treat your kids, I mean, none of us have kids, but for our parents, if, if you treat your kids like little angels and they do no wrong, then you're going to not understand that they are totally depraved. And it says in, in Psalm 51, right, that, that we're formed sinful in our mother's womb. King David says that as he repents for his sin with Bathsheba. We are born as sinful beings because of our inheritance from the first man, Adam, right? We learned about this. So total depravity is super important because what this does is this knocks out everything. If this is really true and you have no desire, you have no inclination, and you can't even if you wanted to, you can't choose God, then none of this is possible. You can't go to Christ on your own. You can't stop resisting God's grace because everything in you wants to hate God. Everything in you wants enmity with God. So this is our starting point, total depravity. And that's even for, you know, for me, I've done children's ministry a lot. I don't have kids yet, but I've done children's ministry and I've come to understand, not because I've had annoying kids or anything like that, I'm sure we all do at some point, but understanding that children as well, we can't just treat them like they're angels who do no wrong and we can't just say, oh, they're just kids. No, they're just sinners. That's why they act the way they do. And if we treat them like that, then we'll actually understand what they need to be saved. So that's T. Next, U, the opposite. Unconditional election. Now bear with me because we're going to move a little quickly now. Unconditional election is the free choice of God to save sinners. If you look with me, it says, God does not choose people to be saved because of anything good or desirable within them. And if you're thinking, man, I had a shot because I have some good and desirable things in me, then welcome to the gospel. Not because we have anything good or desirable. And God also, unlike the Arminians say, God does not look into the future to see who would choose to believe in him because that would be conditional. Rather, God chooses people freely and only according to one thing, which is the pleasure of his own will. However, we want to affirm, because God is not random, God does not choose randomly. All of his choices of who will be saved is in his perfect wisdom and according, as it says in Ephesians 1, according to his eudokios, the pleasure of his goodwill, which means all of God's choices are good, they are perfect, and they are wise. And that's super important. We're saying unconditional election. We're saying that God does not choose because he saw you would choose him. God did not choose you because he saw that you would be a good singer and you would lead the praise team for six years, maybe seven. No, he chose you. Why? Because he chose you. That's it. 
Let that settle in. Do you know why God loves you? Because he loves you. It's something we call a tautology. It's not so much something we could reason with, but it is just the fact that God has chosen us, not because of X, Y, and Z, but he has chosen you and that's it. Leave it there. He chose you and if we understand his character and who he is and his sovereignty, we understand that his choice is free in his own choice. It is his own will and it is good and it is according to his good pleasure. But now we start to understand when you choose something, what is the consequence of choosing something? You don't choose something else. And biblically, we do affirm, although I know it is hard, and I found as a pastor, especially if you have friends or family who are not believers, it is especially hard to affirm the doctrine of predestination. But predestination is one of those things that's been debated in the church, and it is one of the clearest things in the Bible. And like I said, things like universalism, if you say that everyone gets to go to heaven, God is not so mean that he would send people to eternal wrath, we see clearly in scriptures. Right? We, we hear Jesus say to, the, to those who prophesied in his name, did miracles in his name, depart from me. I never knew you. We see people are sent to the place where there is gnashing of teeth and weeping. Not everyone is saved. That is not true at all. And this is where now we come to understanding who has their sins atoned for, right? If only some are chosen, and that's what predestination really means. What does predestination mean? Pre means before, and destination means you have your destination chosen. So biblically, in, in our church and in, in the Reformed tradition, we affirm predestination is a biblical concept. God has chosen some for heaven, some for eternal life, and the rest are doomed to eternal wrath. And I really hope and pray, and I want to just be honest that when I learned this, it was the same. I'm sure for anyone who learns this, it's not easy to reconcile. Right? Out of the five in my family, three of them are not believers. And to know that at any point, if something were to happen, God forbid, they would stand under the eternal wrath of God forever. It's not easy to swallow. But again, we're not talking about what's comfortable here. We're talking about what is laid out for us in God's word. And what we see here is that not all are chosen and that's because not all are atoned for. This brings us to our next point, which is the L, limited atonement. And it means exactly what it says. Another word is particular redemption. I personally like something else, I'll, I'll share it right after. And limited atonement is the exclusive and effective sacrifice of Jesus. Now different from universal atonement, general atonement, where Christ has died for all, he's made his blood and redemption available for all who will believe, what we believe is that Christ has not died for all, he has only died for his sheep, but in his dying, he didn't just make salvation possible, he obtained it and purchased it with his blood. If you read with me, Jesus' death did not simply make salvation possible, it secured salvation for those who were chosen by God before the foundation of the world, which is unconditional election. We do not look at Christ's death and whimsically cross our fingers and hope that he died for me too. Please hear me, Jesus died only for the elect. Now do we know who the elect are? No. You don't get a mark on your forehead, you don't get a card to show off. We do not know who the elect are, but Jesus died only for the elect. His sacrifice does not atone for all the sins of all people. And we need to understand this, Jesus' sacrifice is so perfect that it could save the whole world, but it does not. 
It does not. It does not. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for all, but it is not intended for all. And again, we hear this. It might be hard to believe. We think about those, our loved ones, who are still apart from the grace of God. But I want us to understand that this is not damning people. It is the sins. It is our own sins, our own volition, our own free will that damns us to hell forever. And it's so easy, and we're not going to get into it. We could talk about it if you want to discuss it with me later time, that's fine. But before we, the natural thing is to think, how could God, right, choose to send people off? How could God choose that people's destinies would be set towards hell before they even have a chance? But I think the better question we have to ask is, does anyone deserve anything else? Right? That's where we don't understand grace. So how could God send people to hell? How could God predestine people to hell? But another question we have to ask is, does even one person deserve to be spared from hell? Right? And those are the questions we need to ask. And I want to give actually a different, um, a def- a different word. Right? And one of my professors from seminary, he, gave a diff- he proposed a different name. We're not going to replace it because then we lose the tulip. But he gave a name that I really like, and it's definitive atonement. Two, two dip just doesn't have the ring, same ring to it, okay? And you can't make the flower joke. So we're going to go with tulip. But definitive atonement I really like because it's saying what we just said. The definitive atonement of Christ, we're saying that Christ has died definitively for his elect only. And that in doing so, he has done something definitive. He has definitively secured their salvation. Which means the opposite of this Arminian definition of general atonement, which is saying that Christ has made it possible for you to be saved, so now it's up to you to grasp that for yourself. But in limited atonement, we're saying, no, Christ has died not for all, but only for the elect people of God. And in doing so, he has one million percent purchased and secured that they will have faith and that they will make it to the end. Now, I know this one is hard to swallow, but let me ask you, which one is better? Would you rather it be that Christ dies for all and now it's up to all these sinful, depraved sinners to find their way to Him? Or is it infinitely better that Christ has died for His people? He has died for His sheep. And in doing so, He has obtained something that is sure. Something that cannot be tarnished. Something that cannot be lost. I have to say it's this one. And I know, and and I'm... Of course, I don't want to be, you know, I want to be pastoral as I even teach this, that this might seem really unfair. And I hope, if anything, this puts urgency in our hearts. Because like I said, we don't know who the elect are. You might be thinking right now, people in your family, your friends who are not saved. And you might be thinking, man, this doctrine sucks. And I don't want to believe it. Like I said, I know a lot of people who say they believe in the, the points, but not the L. They don't like the L. But it's laid out in scripture. So what this actually does is it gives us confidence to go out and preach. Right? I preached in third, third to fifth grade for three and a half years. And most of the time those kids are playing with slime underneath their chairs and spinning glow-in-the-dark fidget spinners underneath their chairs, not really listening. But do you know why I preached to third to fifth graders for three and a half years straight? Because I believe in limited atonement. Because although most of them are not listening, I believe 
that if some of them, if any of them, if even one of them are truly a part of God's flock and God has purchased their salvation, which comes through hearing the gospel, then I have the confidence to know that every time I preach, it's not just hoping and shooting bullets up, up in the air like shotgun preaching, hoping that it'll fall on the right person. No, it gives us confidence to believe that if someone in this group of 100, 110 kids is truly elect by God, chosen by God, and this is the point where they hear the gospel and they will come to saving faith, that gives me great assurance. Does that make sense? And that also gives us great assurance to go on missions. You don't just go hoping, man, I hope the people in Arizona or in Kenya will receive the preaching well. If we believe that God has chosen and secured salvation for his sheep, that gives us more confidence than ever to preach the gospel. And it also gives you the prerogative to preach the gospel to everyone you come across. Not just the people who are kind of close to receiving it, right? So there is a lot of good, even in this doctrine. Let's finish up here. And I wanna make sure we end in like within five minutes, take questions and we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this next week if we have to. The next is irresistible grace. Now, when we say irresistible grace, we're not saying that God's grace is so sweet and the news is so good that you can't resist it. We're not saying that at all because clearly that's not true because we resist it even today. But when we talk about the doctrine of irresistible grace, we're saying that God issues a call to his sheep through the gospel alone, okay? I'm sure there are people who say that they were saved but they never heard the gospel. We definitely wanna question the authenticity of that salvation. The gospel, salvation comes through hearing, hearing through faith, through the word of God. Romans 10.10, 10, right? So all people will hear the gospel message. We call this the external call, right? Every Sunday when the preacher is preaching, when the gospel is preached, this is the gospel, the external call. But for the elect, God offers an internal call which cannot be resisted, which means the Holy Spirit softens and regenerates the dead hearts of chosen sinners so that they will willingly come to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. What we're saying there is that for those who are chosen and those who Christ has already atoned for and secured their salvation at the right time when God has sovereignly appointed, they will hear the gospel, the effectual call, the external call, and that gospel will not fall upon deaf ears, but it will fall upon the heart that is regenerated, brought back to life by the Holy Spirit, and that call cannot be resisted. It's not gonna be this constant push and pull, but think about even the moment when you were saved, when you received the gospel, and that is God's work. It wasn't just God saying, you want this, and you saying, eh, not, not today. But that moment when you're saved, that is God overcoming you. You cannot resist it. It is his work in your life. He does not need your permission, but by his mercy, he comes upon you with the gospel and with his faith in Christ. He gives it to us as a, a, a guarantee of the atonement. And then we receive him by faith and we do it willingly. Now, when we say we can't resist it, we're not saying that God turns us into robots and then we choose him in that moment. No, he gives us that faith and he gives us the spirit so that we're willingly able to repent and come to him in faith. Lastly, we have the perseverance of the saints. And this is, again, the exact opposite. This is the guaranteed finish. True Christians cannot and will not lose their salvation. Amen, hallelujah. The good shepherd, Jesus Christ, will never lose his sheep. For a person who is truly saved, though they stumble and fall along the way, they will remain in God's hand until they are glorified and brought before Jesus himself. 
And can this just be an encouragement for those of us already in the new year? Maybe you're failing. You're failing your commitments. Maybe you're failing already to love that person who's so hard to love. Failing to forgive those people in your life that you know you ought to forgive. And maybe we feel like maybe we are slacking. Maybe we are falling off the road. And God promises that if you are in, Romans 8, 39, that if you are in, then you are in forever. That we are confident that nothing, nothing in this earth, nothing in this life, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus. And as we look at this, these five doctrines of grace, we find the very difference that this rests on man's decision. But in the doctrines of grace, we see that salvation rests in God's sovereign will. And do you know that God's sovereign will is good? It is wise and it is perfect. And that is our hope. And I know that, again, I know a lot of times you might leave this class and be like, I just got hit by a theological bus and I learned a lot and it's hard to reconcile. I want to, you know, I shared this actually, I taught this in a, a baptism class to, to high schoolers when I was back in my old church. And there was even times where some of the kids messaged me after hearing this and they just straight up said, I don't know what I believe anymore. And if this has been difficult, I want to encourage you to like speak to someone, speak to a brother or sister that you're close with, you trust, or you could even speak to me or Pastor Peter, one of the elders. And these are things that we must grapple with. I'm not trying to force it down anyone's throat. I've given us the definitions. I've given us the proof text. I have way more if you need it. But these are things we must grapple with because, like I said, we gain them, we glean them from the Bible. This is what the Bible teaches us about salvation. And I hope after hearing both sides, I'm sure there's many other ways that people are saved and doctrine of salvation. But I hope that as you see the difference between these two, I hope you can see that one is good news and one is not. One completely rests on your ability and your choice to choose God. And how can that be good news if even today, with the Spirit of God living within us and with the gospel preached to us every Sunday, we cannot live for God? How can this be good news? It can't. But the good news is that when we are dead in our sins, when we have no way of choosing God, no, no inclination ever and no ability to choose God, He has chosen us, not based on anything good in us or whether we would choose Him, but He chose us purely out of His free will and His wise good pleasure and that He has accomplished definitively our atonement, guaranteeing by His blood, by the blood of His Son, salvation for those all who are chosen. And that ultimately, that comes to us through the gospel. It is grace we cannot resist. And for those who receive this grace, you will make it to the end. I, already, I know 2020 has been a tough year. 2021 already not looking too good. Me and Deacon Lever were talking already. It's like 2020 part two, or it's like the clock hit 1159. And then it went to 1161 and coming to the new year. It's already been a crazy year. But our hope is that Christ does not lose his sheep. Amen. Hallelujah. John 10. Jesus says, as he is the good shepherd, that we remain in his hand. And he also gives us the double-fisted promise that no one will snatch us out of his hands and that we are also in the Father's hands. And no one will snatch us out of his hands. And may that be our hope as we think about this salvation. 
that the one who initiates and acts is God. And it is in his free will, before we could ever love him, before we could ever perform for him, before we could ever fail him, he has chosen us, he has elected us, he has atoned for our sins, he has guaranteed our salvation, and he will make sure that we make it home in glory as his beautiful, sanctified bride. I want to close just with a small anecdote. We know this story, very, very famous story of the footprints in the sand, right? Y'all heard of that? And then a lot of Korean houses have the story on their wall and like a little plaque, right? It's like the story of the person walking on the beach with Jesus, right? Walking in the end of their life. And then there's like two sets of foot, foot, footprints in the sand. And then one day, the person realizes there's only one set of footprints in the sand. And then he's going through a hard time. He says, Jesus, why did you leave me? There's only one set of footprints in the sand. And then, of course, very wisely, very dramatically, Jesus says, No, my child, it was my footprints. I was carrying you the whole way. Now, that sounds good, but that's not the story. What actually happened is Jesus is the one walking. We are dead, totally, in our sins. We're at the bottom of the ocean floor, dead, no ability to get up or to choose him or to walk on our own. And Jesus Christ dives into those waters of our sin, our misery, our brokenness, and by his own life and his own death and his resurrection and his ascension, he brings us to life. And he carried us on his back and he will carry us all the way home. And that is the gospel. That is the doctrines, those are the doctrines of grace, where we see grace beyond measure. And I pray and hope as we take all this home, think about these things again, Start thinking about them, voicing them to people you trust, and we could talk about it. We want to just ultimately ask the question, what does the Bible say? And I really hope we see that in this, this system, in, in these doctrines of grace, we see Christ magnified. We see the sovereignty of God honored. And ultimately, we see our salvation secured by faith in Christ. Any questions? I'm sure we might have a bunch. And because we don't want to run too late, I'll take any short questions and the long ones we can, I'll answer them next week because we only have a third point to go over next week and it's very quick. Any questions here in person? And then we'll go to Zoom. Oh yes, Deacon Levy. Uh, that has to do with the fall from grace versus the perseverance. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, here's a short answer. Um, if, let's say someone goes, is full of the faith, mm -hmm. start out of the faith, maintain it for as long as they can, but they fell out of it. Right. Is the reasoning or explanation for that is that they simply weren't part of the elect? Mm, that's a great question. And that's a very short question. And I would say, if in case it didn't pick up, Levy's question was, if there's a Christian, let's say they come to faith, following Christ, serving Christ, run well, and then at some point in their lives they fall away, is that because they were never a part of the elect? And I would say biblically the answer is yes. Right? The thing about apostasy, think about Judas, right? Think about people who walk away from the faith. Apostasy the biblical definition is people who turn from the faith. And the reason why they turn is because they never knew Christ to begin with. Think about someone like Judas. We're talking about this in our discipleship group. We know the story when Mary breaks the alabaster jar and Judas looks at it and he only is concerned about the, the price of the perfume. And there's a John Piper article, I think it was David Mathis, he says, it's because he couldn't see the worth of the one that the perfume was rolling down. And someone like Judas, he walked with Christ for three years in person, and yet he fell away. And we believe the same. 
that anyone who ultimately did, rejects and denies Christ the end of their life, we would have to say that they weren't elect to begin with. Now, it goes deeper into questions of, you know, and I know this always comes up, people who take their lives. It, it gets a little more complicated, and that's stuff I'd love to talk about for sure. But to answer your question very quickly, Deacon Levy, yes, I would say people who reject Christ at the end of their lives and they don't come back, it's because they were never a part of the family to begin with. Yeah. Good? Okay. Anyone? Questions? No? Okay. Any questions on Zoom? Um, so far, no. So far, no? Okay. Again, I know that everyone has questions. You know, even as I talk about this, I have questions too. And even f to this day, I struggle with it a lot. And it's not easy. But again, we want to be faithful to God's word. So if you have questions or I know some of these things might really hit a soft spot with some of us, especially, and I've also had friends who've walked away from the faith. It's not easy. It's not easy to reconcile these things. But if you want to talk about those things, please come to me, Pastor Peter, anyone. And, and I'd love to talk about these things. Again, we want to be faithful. Yes, Neva, before we go. Yes, that's a good question. And we'll end with that. You know, how do we reconcile that God is sovereign so that who he elects will come to pass, like that, that salvation will come to pass? And how do we ultimately reconcile that with us having free will? And that's a great question. That's something where I've studied it. It's still difficult. But the way I've come to understand it is it's kind of like a railroad. It runs parallel. That it's never that God's sovereignty overlaps or overtakes our free will, but that they run in perfect parallel unison. And we have to understand that, yes, it is God who chooses the, the negative effects. We think about the reprobate, those who are predestined to hell. We think about in the Bible who? Pharaoh and Judah, Judas. And here's the thing about being predestined to hell. It doesn't mean you get to just do whatever you want. We see someone like Pharaoh, someone like Judas, they become instrumental in the salvation of God's people, don't they? Right? So we understand that even for them, were they chosen, like predestined by God to, was Pharaoh predestined by God to harden his heart against God? The short answer is yes. But did Pharaoh also continue to harden his heart against God? Yes. And now does that kind of eliminate the fact that Pharaoh is choosing to do his own thing? Just because God has predestined what happened? I would say no. God's sovereign will will come to pass, but it comes to pass through the free will. And although you, we might again say, oh, but they were supposed to do that, it doesn't negate the fact that they did it and you're responsible for what you do. Now, I know it becomes an endless circle, right? Yeah, actually, while you were explaining this, too, if I can just make a comment, mm -hmm. Sure. And it's so dangerous in a way to just strictly be on either end. Right. Unless we look at the Bible and see how it, it, it of course. explains that. Of course. Because that's really what James was trying to do too, right? Mm -hmm. People were so like, uh, well, took uh, Paul's theology to such an extreme of right. grace that they forgot works. Right. So that's kind of like what we're seeing right Of course. Here. Right. Why is there any for exhortations? Why does Hebrew say the things that Hebrew says? Right. Right? So it seems to me that it's like Deuteronomy 
Right. Right. Affirm the one end of the spectrum. Right. Because when I, because if we actually come to read the Bible, it is a little bit more complex than that. Sure. Which is like what you were explaining with the Pharaoh thing. Right. 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 That yeah. Really the yeah. And that's a great point. And we'll end with this. I think Neva made really two good points. The first one being, it's not about being on one extreme. It's about reading the Bible and gleaning our theology from the Bible. And like I said, the Arminian five points were rejected at the Synod of Dort. And those theological points were mulled over by many faithful church leaders over the span of many months. I believe it was something close to seven months. They reviewed these things and their conclusion was not that they didn't like the Arminians, but that your points are not biblical. And that's why the, the five points of Calvinism, they gave, gave that as a contrast to say, this is what the Bible says. It's not saying that this is all there is to salvation. No, there's many more mechanics, which we're going to talk about in the Ordo Salutis, the third point. But we do need to understand, like Neva said, we do want to glean everything from the Bible. And secondly, like Neva said, it's understanding that we don't want to go into that extreme of one side, but what we do see in the Bible is that there is God's will and there is human responsibility. God holds sinners responsible for their actions. And yet God is always above, like you were saying, his ways are higher. But I don't want to kind of run with that and say, that's a reason for us to kind of dive into this and that. We still want to kind of hone in on the Bible always. But that's a great point. But yeah. Like you were saying, apostasy, should we call it falling away from the faith if you were never in the faith? Well, the Bible does. So we're just going with that. And it's not necessarily saying that they were once in the faith, but that's just the Bible's way of describing that's what it looks like to reject Jesus with this finality, etc. So again, we're trying to be biblical and stick with the terms. Like you were saying even about James, right? Faith without works. So all good points for sure. Okay. We'll end it there. We're a little bit over. I expected today. I, honestly, I didn't expect to go through the whole thing in, in one class, so we're right on track to finish up in two weeks, like I said. Um, again, if you have any questions, please reach out. RichardHanaQPEM.org. And um, I hope really that this challenges us, stirs our faith, and ultimately it'll, hope, it'll help us to really affirm that God is sovereign and that He is good in His sovereign will. So let's pray together and we'll close out. Father, we thank you so much. Um, this has been a lot, a lot of knowledge, a lot of things that we have digested. And God, as always, we pray that this would not just puff up our minds, but that it would humble us, that we see that standing before a holy and righteous God as sinful, totally depraved sinners, that we have no hope in ourselves, that we would never have it in us to choose you or to come to you, that God, actually everything in us wants to rebel against you. We are bent towards you in that way. And yet by your grace, you have chosen us before the foundation of the world. You have sent your son that by his precious blood that he could purchase very great and precious promises for us. And that through the Holy Spirit that you would make those come to life in us as you regenerate our hearts and bring us to life. God, help us to really understand the weight of this salvation we have received and help us, although it may not be easy to swallow, it may not be easy to reconcile all these points, help us most of all to say, God, we want to honor you. We want to honor your word and we want to believe what you have said to us. So help us not to just take this at face value, but to go home and search the scriptures for ourselves and see, God, what is true. And God, if we find this to be true, may we praise you. May we give you glory that you would choose sinners like us who turn even now, every day. You would save us and that you would bring us home to glory. We thank you for that, that we never walked with you. We never were able to carry ourselves, but from the very beginning, you picked us up. 
you scooped us out of that cold ocean, out of our mire and, and all of our misery, and you picked us up, you saved us, you brought us to life, and you will bring us home to be with you forever. We thank you so much. Be with us tonight as we rest and we go into another day. Help us to be faithful above all. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Uh, we'll look to finish next week, and we will end in the third week of January before we start something new and also our young adults large group. So thank you, everyone, for coming. It's good to see everyone. See you soon.